In this month's True Connections podcast, Alan Hooks is joined by Anna Maybank, CEO and co-founder of Breakroom. Anna discusses the inspiration for Breakroom, the importance of selecting the right investors, and the power of feedback. Anna, welcome to True Connections today, and it's a real pleasure to have you join us, so thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Anna, we want to talk about your career as an entrepreneur. You're no stranger to tech startups, you're no stranger to fundraising, you're no stranger to building your own network. So we want to touch on a lot of these topics over the course of this particular conversation, but just take us back, if you will, to a little bit about your background. Breakroom is obviously your current venture as founder and CEO, but this is not your first company that you've founded. So I'd be keen to understand some of your background and a little bit about your past. Absolutely. So I guess Breakroom is either my second or third startup, depending on how you count. But I got into the tech industry and entrepreneurship in a somewhat unusual way. So I graduated university and ended up not really sure what I wanted to do, ended up helping to edit a book about the future of the internet, which was in sort of the mid 2000s. So it was quite a long time ago. And believe it or not, it was the time where we thought the internet was going to solve all of our problems, (laughs) which feels super naive right now. But there was this kind of moment in time that was a few years after the dot-com crash, where people believed that there was this huge wave of optimism around what technology could do to change the world. And I ended up researching this book that involved a lot of kind of desk research around Wikipedia, for example, which was fairly new and multiplayer online games. And the basic tenant of the book was new technology offers us new ways of organising society and creating things that sort of bypass traditional institutions. And I thought that was a totally fascinating idea. And it actually led me to learn about the startup world, which I was completely new to. And just a short hop from the idea that you can use technology to reorganize things or you can start companies to help you do that you know you don't need to work for a big organization to make an impact you can start your own thing and that idea was just incredibly compelling to me and I wanted to do something that was meaningful and that created an impact not just to make money and so I threw myself into learning all about this relatively new thing called a startup this was just about the time where the first iPhones were coming out. And so there was this new interest in the tech industry. And then I ended up co-founding from there an accelerator program called Bethnal Green Ventures, where the whole premise was to build businesses that had a social or environmental purpose. So to use technology to quite literally changed the world. Now, the idea of being a mission-driven or a purpose-driven company is incredibly trendy. And obviously, the rise of ESG has made that mainstream in the financial sector as well. But at the time, the idea of starting a mission-driven or a purpose-driven business was, I'm going to say radical, but it was also quite strange and quite niche. So I co-founded Bethel Green Ventures to help lots of people try and create these kind of businesses. Um, At the time my combinator had just started and we were inspired by that how do we take this kind of accelerator model and again apply it to people who want to start businesses that have a social or environmental mission and really from there that taught me a lot about 
the business world, taught me loads about starting companies. You know, I was going through a process of starting an organisation of business myself. Bethel Green Ventures is still going and thriving. They're now an early stage investor in technology companies that have a social or environmental purpose. But for me, it made me realise that I wanted to start my own business, not just help other people <laughs> do that. And so I got a scholarship to go to UC Berkeley in the States, do my MBA, and then to cut a long story short, came back to the UK, co-founded my first proper company, I guess, called Poetica, where I was the CEO and co-founder, sold that business to Condé Nast in 2016, and then more recently have started Breakroom. So it was a bit of an unusual beginning to an entrepreneurial journey, but I guess you could now describe me as a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> well, Anna, there's never one particular path that any entrepreneur takes. I think every single path is different. And I think that's the real beauty about many of the entrepreneurs that we speak to. Anna, just picking up something you said about businesses that are doing good. And I'd be interested to see what your contrast is in terms of investors and backers that you might have been speaking to back in those early days when you're talking to them about companies or businesses that are doing positive things to improve people's lives, essentially. What was it like in those early days, having those conversations, and, and how does that contrast to now in your time at Breakroom? That's such an interesting question. So in the early days of talking to both investors, but other people as well in the tech industry, about the idea that you could both make money and create a positive impact in the world, you'd quite often get dismissed as being, oh, well, that's just a charity. That's what charities do. And I can't describe how much that has changed between like the early days of Bethel Green Ventures and even the first time that I went to go and talk to friends and family about a kind of initial pre-seed round in break room now ESG has just hugely popularized the idea that mission-driven businesses are the future of business <laughs> and that has made all of those conversations much easier to be honest I think when we started break room I was prepared for a lot of convincing and I wanted to fundraise from more traditional seed funds who were purely commercial and persuade them that backing mission-driven businesses was the smart financial thing to do and honestly it was much easier than I thought it was going to be given the changes that have happened in the last few years so it's been amazing to see through the course of 16 or so years the shift in the market and I hope that that shift is permanent and we really have seen a permanent movement towards acknowledging that actually the smart thing for business in the medium to long term is actually to put people and planet first and part of how you think about creating a sustainable ambitious world-changing venture is to put mission at the center of what you do and anna just by forwarding i guess to 2018 in the start of break room what was the inspiration behind that break room started actually because myself and two friends james and tom who had worked together both at Bethnal Green Ventures and later at Poetica. We knew we wanted to start a business together. We were looking for an idea to start us off. And what we wanted to do was figure out what is the biggest problem that we think we could help tackle that everyone else is kind of overlooking. We were looking for what is the next 
thing that people are going to realise that is important, but they've not realised that yet. I mean, everyone is always trying to do a version of this. And the answer that we came up with is the biggest problem that we think is important that people are overlooking is the rise in income inequality. And obviously, governments and start to talk about that as a problem. But in the tech industry, a lot of that conversation was about the future of work, And the future of work was all about the gig economy and automating away low paid jobs that have been traditionally undervalued. And myself and my two co-founders felt like that was not realistic. We realised how many people in the labour market are working on the front line in lower paid roles that have traditionally been undervalued in industries like retail, hospitality, social care, logistics see how the story changes thanks to the pandemic and all of the difficult stuff that's happened in the last two years we were basically like okay how do we help tackle the problem of income inequality through making jobs better and we basically started by talking to lots and lots of people who work in those industries on the front line and trying to understand what do you want from work how is your work changing What are your aspirations for the next stage in your career? What do you think your employers should be doing differently? And the thing that we learned through those conversations was that there was this huge information black hole around what other jobs might be like and what to expect from the working world. And so we started running these surveys with frontline workers about their experience of work and what they wanted from work. And we realised that as everyone was taking these surveys, they wanted to know what everyone else thought. And the survey covered all of the like really crunchy stuff about frontline work. So you're typically working shifts, for example. So lots of questions about shifts, about pay, about how your managers treated you, about how customers treated you, about how your team treated you, whether you liked your team. And what we realised was that there was this huge opportunity to use this information that we were collecting to help people in employment find better jobs but also to help employers improve the quality of their work and that was the kind of original genesis for Breakroom. And what I so love about that story is particularly reflecting on what's happened in the last what two and a bit years in terms of the pandemic is that there's been so much focus on the workforce, the return to the office, the great resignation and all the other things that we've been hearing about and reading about over this last while but as you say what's often overlooked is those in those lower income jobs, I guess, you know, the retail, the hospitality industry, those in working in social care. I'm pretty sure most of those people don't work in offices, for example. <laughs> and therefore, a lot of those things that are being talked about is just not relevant. So I guess your timing has been impeccable in terms of finding an issue that is really live. And there I say it, that the pandemic is really honed in on those particular issues is that the way you see it as well and your co-founders saw it yeah so before the pandemic i had again conversations i had one investor tell me that what i needed to understand was that no one cared about this workforce and they didn't matter and they were going to be automated away anyway at the time i was like i think you're very wrong about that 
the pandemic happened and you know it's been such a hard time it's obviously been such a hard time for so many people but it just became so obvious that the basic premise behind break room that some of the most important people in the economy are actually working on the front line they're not being paid enough and they're not being well treated that just became really obvious to everyone and so whilst you're right I think there is still this huge media focus on office workers we think that 50% of people in the UK don't work in sort of what we would call I guess knowledge work you know they're not office workers sitting at a desk and those people's experience of the pandemic has been super different those jobs are not going away we need to make them better we've got a shortage of something like a hundred thousand care workers in the UK at the moment a big part of how we address that is by creating better quality jobs and break room is collecting the data to help employers do that and help workers find better work But I think the pandemic has, in a really hard way, basically highlighted the fact that the premise that we started the business on, which is the future of work for lower paid frontline work, needs to be better. That has just become very apparent to everyone, which has been useful from the perspective of building a business. But yeah, it's been a hard way for, I think, society to learn that, right? And Anna, to just explain to us, how exactly does it work? I mean, you've got tens of thousands of members now you've got the ability for employers to see their data and for employees to provide their feedback. How does it work practically? Yeah, absolutely. On Break Room, you, as a job seeker or someone who's curious about what job might be better for you, you come to Break Room, you take the Break Room quiz, which is now a set of 30 questions that really get into the nuts and bolts about what your daily experience of work is really like. It covers four areas, pay, hours and flexibility, benefits in the workplace and how you get treated at work on a day-to-day basis, so workplace culture. You take the quiz, we give you a score based on your answers and you can use that score to compare your job and find somewhere better to work. On the other side of that, we are using all of that information that workers share with us to create public profiles of employers that workers can use to learn what a different job might be like. But we're also using that information to help employers understand how they compare in the market and how they can improve. And we're just in the process of this year, we have started to build out more and more recruitment features that helps use our data to better match workers with higher quality jobs. It's a super simple idea. You come to break room, you take the quiz, we help compare your job, find somewhere better to work. And on the back end, we're helping employers create better quality jobs for people to find and apply for. And how do you ensure, Anna, that the responses you're getting are fair? You know, how do you ensure it's not just a disgruntled employee or that a company isn't being looked upon in an unfair way. Is that managed in any way? Great question. Unlike traditional review sites, which are obviously plagued by that question the whole time, the incentive for you to provide information to Breakroom is different. Obviously, the standard complaint about traditional review sites on the internet is how do we ensure that those reviews are from genuine people and they are fair because the incentive to leave a review is often negative. You know, you're angry about something, and so you want to tell the world about it. We deliberately designed Breakroom so that the incentives for sharing your experience of work are different, right? You're taking the quiz that helps you compare your job for quite selfish reasons. So you want to know whether you're getting a good deal or not. 
And we think that helps incentivize people to share a more accurate representation of their experience of work because it's useful for them, but it's also helping other people who are members of our community. To be honest, I'm sure this will come as we scale, but so far we haven't had a problem with sort of fake quizzes or other information. We've got a fairly comprehensive moderation system that helps us automatically spot any data that we think might be inaccurate. But largely, we think the incentives that we've designed into the product mean that we can provide you with the most accurate information about people's experience of work that is currently available online. Anna, how has the employers reacted to it? Um, How much engagement have they shown? I know a lot of responses around the NHS and really significant employers, Amazon, for example, Has there been much of a reaction from their side? Yeah, so I have been actually quite surprised by this because when we started the business, and this is still true today, one of our core principles is that we are worker first. So we are trying to build a trusted source of information. And the way that we do that is by building a product that starts with building something that is useful for workers and trusted by workers. And so we want people who come to Breakroom to know that we have designed our information to be open and honest and you can see that you know you'll notice that our content does best and worst places to work we list the places that are worst on our platform and the reason for that is we believe that transparency is really important to being worker first and I was expecting at some point as we grew and drew more and more attention from employers that wouldn't be very popular in some quarters but I actually have found that we're in a really lucky position in that the existence of the whole consumer reviews market with companies like Trustpilot, but obviously also Glassdoor has created the reviews market for employers, right? And so actually, we're not educating employers about the fundamental idea of their employees leaving and putting information about them online. Employers understand that. And actually, Glassdoor has paved the way for a few things that employers I've spoken to accept it as the norm and they also find it useful. And Glassdoor has helped us in that it has paved the way and taught the market what employee reviews and the kind of information that we're gathering can do for a business and also that it's an inevitable feature of like the modern workplace and so we just in the last six months or so just started to think not only about what we build for workers because that's as we were talking about before our principle of being worker first meant that all of our product work focused on building a useful tool for employees to compare their jobs find somewhere better to work And the last six months or so, we started thinking about how we make our platform useful also for employers. And I've been surprised at the degree to which the market response to that has been very positive. And I think a big part of that is the basics of what we're trying to do are well understood at the moment. Also, there is a huge recruitment problem in the industries that we're focused on. And there is nothing like not being able to hire anyone, spending a ton of money trying to recruit people and still not being able to um, recruit good people. That has really focused the minds of employers. And they're very open to the idea of improving the quality of jobs, even raising wages where possible. So I think it's a combination of educated market, but also a shifting labour market that has made employers really receptive to the data that we're collecting. And you must be so proud, Anna, of having a business which puts the power in the hands of people to have a positive impact and then just seeing that data coming through, 
which can hopefully genuinely help some of the issues. And one of those issues that you just touched on is that shortage of labour. I guess the other point is around current costs of living. And the huge benefit of, I guess, a data-driven organisation also is that you have that information live as it comes through. Is there anything in that data or in the reports that you've been able to use, Anna, that has sort of given you any insight, given you any surprises on those, I guess, two big topics around the shortage of labour currently and cost of living here in the UK? Is there anything that's come out of the data that you've seen so far? Yeah, absolutely. We've just done a additional survey of our members. We also regularly run kind of surveys of our membership base about a variety of current topics. And one of them was around the cost of living. And we haven't published this data yet, but I was just looking through to see what the most interesting things are. So this is kind of hot off the we recently did a survey that asked our members about how the cost of living crisis was impacting how they were thinking about their current job and whether they were looking for anywhere new to work. About 75% of people we surveyed said that they were looking for a new job at some point in the next 12 months. And 80% of those said that a key factor in the decision to look for a new job was the rising cost of living. So absolutely, the cost of living crisis is having a really big impact on people who use break room to compare their jobs and find somewhere better to work. Yeah. We also found that employers aren't responding to that. So more than 70% of the people that we surveyed said that they had not been giving a cost of living pay increase in the last six months. And so it's really clear that employers need to react to the current cost of living crisis in order to retain their employees. But that is something that they are currently slow to do. And one of the stats that always sticks in my mind from our membership is we ask people about whether they believe that head office understands what's going on on the ground in their business. And well over 70% of people always say that head office does not understand what is going on in the ground. That to me is the stat that always sticks out as like, there's a huge problem for businesses who employ a large number of frontline workers if they don't understand what's actually happening on a day-to-day basis in their companies. And that is the overwhelming message from break room users that if you are running a business with a large workforce, you almost certainly don't understand what's going on on a day-to-day basis. And that's part of the problem that you really need to fix. And Anna, what's astonishing is that sort of response really shouldn't be a surprise. It feels like that's fairly obvious, but I guess until you see it in hard figures and responses, it doesn't really hit home perhaps, but it still surprises me. Totally. It's also really consistent across industries. (laughs) So I completely agree. It feels like it should be totally obvious, but seeing it again and again really hammers home the scale of the problem. And I'd be hard pushed to tell you about an employer or an industry who was doing better than that. And I just wanted to switch on to break room, I guess, in particular, your fundraise that you successfully completed at the back end of last year. Obviously, with your work at Poetica, your work at Bethel Green Ventures, etc., you're no stranger to VC backing and angel investors. But certainly be interested to hear, and I know a number of our listeners will be keen to understand from your side, how did you go out approaching your most recent fundraiser? I mean, now that's quite a significant raise from your initial investment. Was there any particular process you went through to undertake that raise? Two points, really. One, the power of your network, if you like, if that was relevant. But the second bit, I'd be interested to 
see if you've got any comments on Resolution Ventures and how important that was in terms of potentially a target for you as a backer. As with most fundraising, it always starts right at the beginning of a business with the people who know you best. So we actually raised a very small friends and family or what's sometimes called a pre-see round before last summer that was raised through our network, previous investors who backed my last company, Poetica, investors in our CTO Tom's last business, people that James had worked with previously. So a combination of employees at large tech companies that we knew, professional angel investors. It was a real kind of friends and family round. And then, you know, you use that initial capital, which is all about the team and the idea to build out a series of proof points. And one of our seed fund investors likes to say that, you know, the point to raise new funding is when you've proven something new. And so we basically used that friends and family capital to prove that we had the breakthrough quiz was something that people wanted to take to compare their jobs. And we also proved that we could take that data and turn it into publicly available profiles that would then drive more people to use Breakroom and use the product. And that helped us. So these initial proof points around the fact that we built something that workers wanted helped us raise this more significant seed round from more traditional seed funds, primarily in London, but also a few who are based in the US. And then the more unusual people on our cap table is an organisation called Resolution Ventures. They are a charity who, if you read the FT a lot, you may actually have read some of their research. So they exist to help change government policy around low and middle income workers. And they do that by doing a lot of economic research on the labour market. In the last few years, they've carved out and found funding for this thing called Resolution Ventures, which invests in very early stage companies like ourselves who have a social mission. I think they probably describe themselves as a small scale impact investor. But I actually brought them in at the friends and family stage because it was really important to us as a business to have someone on the cap table who represented the users of Breakroom, employees who we wanted to use the product to help them get a better job and Resolution Ventures to me represented the best way of doing that and they've been backers both financially but also in terms of providing us with additional research and additional understanding of the labour market which has been super valuable and they're actually not the only impact investor so Revent we have three seed funds who have backed us so ProFounders, Northzone and Revent. Northzone are, are famous for being one of the earliest investors in Spotify but they're also one of Trustpilot's earliest investors so there's obviously an overlap there in terms of reviews and ratings. ProFounders have backed probably their most prominent investments are things like Made.com but they've also done a bunch of early stage deals in the labour and employment and HR tech space basically and then a third seed stage fund called Revent who are a new fund but they are specifically ESG focused so they are commercial and this is an example of the kind of fund that just did not exist when I started my career and it is so awesome to see this become mainstream but they are a commercial standard seed fund but their focus is on impact businesses so we've got quite a wide range of 
both traditional and new investors, which has brought a fantastic breadth of experience and advice to the table. And I was very, very fortunate to have such a fantastic range of investors backing us. Has it changed the dynamic, Anna? I think of Tom, yourself, James, as co-founders with a number of other interested parties now involved as part of the raises that you've done. Has much changed in terms of the dynamic of the business as a result of that? Only in a good way. You know, when you start out, for everything that I've started, you know, you go through this kind of scrappy stage, which is, for break room, it was literally me, Tom and James in a very scrappy office for a while building everything ourselves most companies go through that phase and that is fun and exhilarating and it feels like anything is possible but it's also quite frustrating because it can be quite slow and having more capital and more people behind you obviously just creates this kind of momentum in its own right and we were incredibly lucky to be able to have choice in who we picked as backers And we thought carefully about who we wanted to work with and the kind of culture fit for investors. And I would say, I actually don't think we talk about this enough in the fundraising process, but finding investors who you actually want to work with is really important. (laughs) It's as important as hiring team members, right? And I think startups in general have got much better at interviewing recruitment processes because often the power dynamic between investor and startup, where a startup is always trying to raise capital and will kind of do anything to make that happen. The idea that you should be making an active choice about who you want to work with is sometimes lost. But we've been very fortunate in that we've had choice over our investors. And, you know, I take recommendations. We obviously also spend a lot of time and I take recommendations from other entrepreneurs. We also spent a lot of time getting to know investors over a fundraising process. And so we've been incredibly lucky to work with people to make a choice about who we worked with. And that has meant that the kind of cultural fit has been very strong. And we've ended up with a really positive, collaborative relationship with our investors. And what does it mean for Broke Room now? And what next on the horizon? What does the future look like? What we are focused on right now, alongside, so we're continuing to build out the data collection part of Break Room and the ability for people to compare their jobs, find somewhere better to work. But in the last six months, we've started thinking about how we build a product that helps employers learn from the data we're collecting and ultimately also use that data to recruit better. And so at the moment, we're making that switch from purely focusing on a product for employees to also building out a product for employers. And that is the primary product work that we're focused on. We've also just hugely expanded our team. (laughs) So we were six or seven people at the beginning of the year and we're about, we'll be 20 in the next few months. So there's a lot of team building stuff that's going on, which is just fantastic. And it's exciting to see, you know, something that you've worked on with such a small group of people become infectious across a bigger team. And then a big part of that actually has been bringing on a marketing function within the business. So myself, Tom and James all come from quite a product focused background. And we took a product focused approach to growing Breakroom. We tried to build a really good experience and use that as a way of helping Breakroom spread. But it's been fantastic in the last couple of quarters to hire. We have an amazing CMO now. We've got 
amazing people doing content, both social media and traditional PR for us. And we're just starting to tap into the power of our data to tell stories that really help Breakroom spread much further than we could have done as just a product-focused team. Those three things are building out this employer offering, but helping our team grow, and then really supercharging everything with new marketing firepower is the things that are currently on my near-term horizon. There's lots on the to-do list. Anna, one thing we ask a lot of our guests who join us is, to give us a couple of key principles that they stick by as an entrepreneur. Many of our listeners are part of our network and will be building out their own businesses and companies. Similar to you, I guess. What's the sort of key principle that you stick by as an entrepreneur, Anna? This is an oldie but a goodie. Always go back to talking to your users and talking to your customers. I always appreciate someone else reminding me of that regularly. It is very easy to lose sight of that, surprisingly so. And it is the most useful forcing function and reality check and the most useful activity that you can be doing. And I think that is true no matter how big your business becomes to try and stay as close as possible to the problem you're trying to solve, who has that problem and how you're solving it. And the only way you can do that is by talking to your users and your customers. Which is the very essence of break room, right? Talking to employers, talking to employees all of whom have a shared interest to get these things right and find solutions. So a principle that's being lived out, I would say, Anna. Glad to hear it. Thank you very much for your time today. Really loved hearing from you and all the very best with Break Room. I'm sure it goes from strength to strength and great to hear some really positive stories to some really live issues that are going on. So very grateful to speak to you and look forward to speaking to you next time. My absolute pleasure. It's been great to meet you today. Thanks so much for your time. That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. 